Tom, thank you very much for coming on the well, podcast. Thanks. I think all the thanks are due to you for uh, taking me out here to this wonderful restaurant. Tell us about this place, since it is your favourite restaurant. Yes, it's uh, it's it's a real flavour of old Soho, uh, at, literally actually, because it's it's in a kind of 18th century block, and so there's a. A, a faint hint of Hogarth and Pope about it, but it's also um, an incredibly well-established restaurant. It's been here for, for decades. Food is wonderful, wine's wonderful, and the reason I particularly like it is that above the restaurant there is a private members club, which was set up by Oberon War, again years and years ago. Very rackety, very Hogarthian. But you can sit there and you, you can get the food without having to book down at the restaurant. <laughs> so, so it's very it's a, it's a, it's a place I've I've always loved. You mentioned the faint hints of Hogarth, Gin Lane, just behind yeah. you there. Well, a- Andrew, um, when he's not a restaurateur, is also a collector of 18th century prints, which again is a kind of very Soho thing to do. But Soho, as it used to be maybe 20 or 30 years ago, the property price is becoming so expensive here that it's very difficult for the poets and the literateurs and the collectors of uh, strange 18th century prints to hold out. But this is, you know, it's uh, one last outpost of that vanishing culture. Well, pretty much everything we're going to be talking about goes back way before the 18th century. Uh, Dominion, the making of the Western mind. Listening to you speak about the book, as I had the pleasure of doing at Southwark Cathedral a few months back, just before it was published, it's clear that several things inspired you to write it. You get to the end of the book itself and and explain this in a lot more detail, but I think it would be a good idea in the first instance to say what those things were. Well, um, I, I was I was raised an Anglican, and I kind of believed it. I, I went to church, I went to Sunday school, I sang in the choir. Both my mother and my godmother, who actually features at the end of the book, great influences on me so I always kind of admired and respected the Christianity in which I was being raised but to be honest I found it faintly dull in comparison with the things that as a child really obsessed me which were first of all dinosaurs and then secondly the Romans and looking back I can see that there's actually (laughs) quite a lot in that Tyrannosaurs and Roman legions have in common because they're both you know very fierce very glamorous and very extinct I found the Romans in all kinds of way kind of in, in, increasingly frightening. I mean, the sense in which they inspired a sense of fear and awe and dread in me was always part of the excitement, as, as with tyrannosaurs. But I began to think that actually their ethics and their morals and the things they took for granted were not just alien, but actually kind of really made me think, well, where do my values come from? The callousness of the Romans was something that seemed innocent, in comparison to later generations. The Romans didn't seem to think that the slaughter of a million Gauls and the enslavement of another million Gauls by Caesar was in any way monstrous. In fact, it was rather heroic and glorious and something to be celebrated. And this made so them innocent. Kind of yes, it, it, essentially how, yeah, how that kind of innocence got lost, how doing things like that became something to, to be condemned, and if you did them, something to worry about. As something as fundamental as sex, for instance, you'd think that... That is something that is constant, that people have experienced sexual desire in the same way across the ages, you know, across the world. But the Romans had a very different understanding of sexual desire. It was kind of mediated by power, not by gender. So you could have sex with 
men, women, boys, girls. It, it, it made no real difference. What mattered from the Roman point of view was that if you were a man, you were the person who was uh, taking the active, the aggressive, the dominant role. The Romans, as I understand it from your book, profaned sex to the point where even to ejaculate was synonymous with to piss. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's a very erroneous assumption that lots of people have that, that Roman sexuality was all about, you know, uninhibited kind of joyous lacking any sense of of uh, complication or inhibition it wasn't basically sex for, for 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 romans was something that you you did in the way that you urinated it was a kind of expense of fluid that you had to get rid of and just as you might urinate into a, a, a urinal so if you had a need to ejaculate you would do it into the mouth or the vagina or the anus of some you know of an inferior you know. you're not really supposed to particularly enjoy sex that's the kind of thing that greeks get up to it's perverted faintly filthy and effeminizing um, and if as a man you are kind of lowered to the level of a slave or a woman then that's deeply unmanning of course the the, the tension in roman sexuality is that actually sex you know, is, is 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 fun and so the Romans' males were constantly kind of walking this tightrope between wanting to do things that they worried would make them perverted and effeminate um, and doing it and then kind of getting having a massive kind of complex about it. And so essentially, I, I, I've, I've been kind of really, really interested in seeing whether I can trace the process of that evolution from the Roman world into the present. And I, essentially, I think that that. that Christianity is the key to understanding this that Christianity is the great transformational force it massively reconfigures the way that people think about things in 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 ways so fundamental that now by and large we tend to take them completely for granted we meet on a chill grey autumn evening, which also happens to be the feast day of St. Crispin and Crispian. <laughs> it does, uh, yes. You tweeted uh, well wishes to all your followers to mark the occasion this morning. Um, for those who don't know or are only vaguely familiar with these names, could you take us through the story of St. Crispin? Um, uh, well, Crispin and uh, Crispianus were uh, cobblers um, who became Christians uh, at a time of mass persecution under the Emperor Domitian at the end of the 3rd century AD. Uh, and they were beheaded and martyred, and so were commemorated as as, as saints. But the um, the re- <laughs> the reason why um, English speakers tend to remember them is because um, Crispin Crispianus is the feast day, the, the feast their feast day is also the anniversary of the Battle of Agincourt in 1415, um, possibly the most heroic and against the odds victory um, in English history. And the reason it's particularly remembered, of course, is because Shakespeare writes it up, bigs it up, and gives Henry V um, a speech in which Crispin and Crispianus are invoked. Um, and because Laurence Olivier and Kenneth Branagh and people have, have, have delivered this ringing peroration, it's always good, particularly at a time when um, it's a little bit depressing to be English, to be honest. You know, slight feeling that things aren't perhaps as great as they could be just to just to remember an english victory against the odds in the uh, the mud and rain of october hello david Sorry, no no not at all <laughs> I, I think we're ready i really quite like the look of the sweden honey soup yes could i have the burrata could i have the polenta i'll have the ox cheek please 
Some will have heard of this book and will know that it charts the evolution of Christian thought. What I was hoping it would do, which I'm grateful it did, was to bring me face to face with my values as more than just a product of my generation, my parents' generation, and a series of cultural movements that emanated from the end of the Second World War. I personally identify that yearning within me with questions about the future of the West today. Is that something you relate to? Yes. I mean, I, I, I wrote the book because I'd found something increasingly disconcerting about the way in which I couldn't find solid foundations for the things that, that, that I was taking for granted. I, I, th- I think the kind of the Enlightenment idea that there is a kind of form of rational humanism that exists in the ether waiting to be discovered by Greek philosophers or Chinese sages or people in the 1990s or 21st century West and it just exists imminent waiting to be found is 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 clearly as 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 implausible as anything that um that 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 any Christian has believed and that's particularly so because the argument of the book is is that what I believe as a you know as a as as a secular liberal humanist in the beginning of the 21st century in all its essentials is Christian you know it, it doesn't derive from the 18th century the 18th century derives its convictions from the vast inheritance of Christianity and the truth is that over the course of writing this book I read an enormous amount of Christian literature Christian apologetics um, biblical and patristic uh, writings and the more I read in it the more I discovered that it constitutes an immensely powerful symbolically resonant mythically resonant philosophically resonant above all mythic explanation of what the cosmos is and what humanity's role in it is and it's a kind of sobering reflection that we are all the creatures of our history and that Therefore, to what extent are the things that I believe not merely contingent, not merely products of of the distinctive cultural inheritance that I, as someone living in the the 21st century West, have been able to claim? And I think that part of the problem for for people living in the West is is that we've forgotten where these ideas come from. Uh, So we have no sense of the kind of the vast richness of this kind of Christian hinterland from which they emerged and so as a result the the roots are pretty weak it seems to me they're pretty attenuated Um, essentially you know why do we believe what we believe we believe it basically because if we don't we're fascists I mean that's essentially what it boils down to you know if we try and find a reason if 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 we're confronted by people who disagree with, for instance, the idea that, that, that all humans are fundamentally equal, the, the idea that you know, there is no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free, there is no man or woman, um, the idea that um, uh, the, the strong have a duty of care to the weak, that the weak have rights that they can impose on the strong, that there are such things as human rights. Where do these ideas come from? And essentially, it seems to me, looking at the way that that arguments have been conducted over the past few years, when these ideas have kind of come under threat more than they have done for for, for a long while, the argument basically comes down, if you don't believe this, then you're a Nazi, then you're Hitler. And I think that that is an argument because... 
because it is being repeated so often that is starting to fail. And I think that you know, we need deeper reasons to believe what we believe. When we walk into the hinterland that you describe there and, and look at some of the people that appear throughout the book, we see this enchanting pageant. But I wondered, as I read the book, who you admire most for having changed the course of Christendom. Uh, and I think it's fair to say in that list, Paul, Paul features quite heavily. Yeah. I mean, several Christians have said, what about Jesus? The thing about Jesus is, as he is portrayed in the Gospels, I think he's the most remarkable kind of fictional creation of all time. The Jesus of the Gospels is clearly the bedrock, really, of Christianity. But from the historical point of view, we don't know Jesus of the Gospels, how that relates to the historical Jesus. I think it's an impossible question to answer. So I duck it in the book. But what we, we have Paul. And Paul's letters are the earliest Christian writings we have. And so they bear witness to kind of ground zero. When Paul enters, it's a really brilliant moment oh, well, that's on kind. that road to Damascus. I mean, I, the thing about Paul as well is that so much that he writes about is revolutionary, transformative. This is the, as close as we get to, to whatever it is that generates the belief that a criminal who suffered the fate of a slave in some way is a part of the one God of Israel. And Paul says that this is a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to the Jews because, of course, the Jews believe in, in the one creator God. So how can this man possibly be a part of that divine essence? And furthermore, the Jews believe that the one God has established a covenant with the Jews and not with anyone else. And Paul's conviction is that the death of, of, of Christ on the cross has brought in a, a new covenant and that anyone, not just Jews, but anyone who believes in it can be a part of that covenant. So essentially what he's doing is shifting the gears from the God of Israel to the God who's created the entire world. And that, of course, is a momentous shift with implications that we live with today, because what it does is twofold. It, it establishes an idea that there is no Jew or Greek, that everyone essentially is, is, is created equal. But it also gives to all of humanity the distinctively Jewish notion that man is created in the image of God and therefore has a dignity that no other cultural system can offer him. And almost everything that, that is distinctive about Christian civilization, which in turn will become the civilization of the, of the modern West, is there kind of waiting to germinate in these few letters of Paul. It's kind of astonishing. It's like kind of acorns from which massive oaks will sprout. And there's almost nothing, certainly for good, I mean, in terms of, of the idea of commonality of humanity, uh, the idea that, that law is something written on the heart that is dictated by our conscience, which is something that Paul absolutely preaches, the idea that it can be progressive, the idea that there is a kind of value and a dignity in those who suffer. All of these are, are, are crucial ideas that I think that, that by and large most people in the West would acknowledge to be positives. It also, however, does also enshrine certain things that have shadowed Christianity. Because to go back to that idea, that Pauline idea that, there, you know, in, in Christ Jesus there is no longer Jew or Greek, that may sound impeccably ecumenical. I mean, this is, you know, hug the world, we are the world. But if you're a Jew, you may not want to have your distinctiveness dissolved into what a Jew might see as a kind of universalist mush. And essentially that explains why relations between Christians and Jews have always been problematic and why 
throughout its 2,000-year history, the history of Christianity's relationship to the Jews remains a kind of massive blot by the standards of Christians themselves, because Jews are, relative to Christianity, have always been weak. And yet Christians have used their strength, their power, their hegemony to persecute Jews. And I think that that is a kind of tension that liberalism has inherited. What do liberals do to people who don't want to be liberal? It's, it's recognisably a problem that liberals have inherited from, from Christians. And even if you're not Christian today, if you, if you hold liberal values, that remains a, 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 a problem to which there is no ready solution. Let's talk a little bit about what we have in front of us. You ordered the polenta. So it's a, a kind of a, a gloriously autumnal uh, melange of oranges and uh, yellows. Um, really delicious. There's so much that we could cover, but I'd like to talk about the role of Nietzsche and his influence on the diagnosis of the West as Christianity appears to decline. In terms of how he fits into this story, I leave it to you. I think that the focus of intellectual activity in the West over the past 200 years has basically been people trying to come up with reasons why they can hold on to the, the moral and ethical principles of Christianity without actually believing in Christianity or in many cases actively rejecting it. The writer really who calls time on that and, and, and points out that the emperor has no clothes, as you say, is Nietzsche. And... What's unsettling about Nietzsche is that, unlike most atheists who reject Christianity, deny that God exists, but essentially just rehash Christian ideas while trying to find justifications for it, Nietzsche actively hates Christian ideals. Um, and it's interesting that, that he, like Paul, he fixes on the cross as, as, as lying at the heart of the Christian revolution. And like Paul, he recognises the full revolutionary scope of what is being preached, this idea that an implement of torture, an implement designed to uphold the power of uh, authority of Rome has been turned against that power and authority. But unlike Paul, he regards it as a, as a calamity because he sees the the kind of animal primal values of classical antiquity the idea that strength is a positive that beauty is a positive he sees this as being corroded and destroyed by by christianity and by paul in particular and although nietzsche himself is an incredibly subtle sophisticated thinker very hard to pin down someone so contemptuous of nationalism that he gives up his uh, Prussian nationality at an early age and, and remains stateless for the rest of his life, who deeply admires the Jews, although he hates Christians. His, his ideas blur and merge with a kind of vulgarised understanding of Darwinism that it's about the survival of the fittest to play a crucial part in what will emerge as Nazi ideology. The Nazis, of course, don't think of themselves as evil. The Nazis think that they are doing what is right for their race. And they're aware that in saying that there is a Greek or Jew against Paul, that actually the differences are fundamental. They see that they are upholding the future of, of their race. And they think that this is all that anyone can do. Hitler in particular thinks that the Greeks and the Romans were of Nordic stock 
and that the greatness of Greek and Roman civilization was destroyed by Christianity with its idea that you know all are one and that and that the weak should have power over the strong his anxiety is that his Reich will never survive for a thousand years if these Christian ideas are allowed free reign because Paul is Jewish he associates these ideas with the Jews that's why he he launches his genocide his determination that a new Paul will not arise to preach the authority of the weak over the strong but of course another Paul did emerge and he was joined by a John and a Ringo and a George <laughs> yes. and so you write about the the Beatles as preaching what is fundamentally the Christian belief in universal love and love is in some ways the most important word in the book well Augustine sums up Paul's teaching as as being love and do as you will mm-hmm. and there's an enormous amount of theology behind that but you could say that that essentially is the vibe in the 60s because of course love in English has many shades of meaning uh, there's love as in love me do she loves you yeah 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 um, and that of course is 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 a crucial part of of rock and roll and of, of what people in the 60s are singing is the idea of love as sex it's about sex it's about liberation to enjoy sex it's about overturning particularly christian sexual morals and saying that actually we should you know these are the, the these are, 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 are puritanical we need to get rid of them we need to celebrate sexuality that's what love is all about and that's you know love is in the air but then again there is also the the the, the kind of more Christian sense of love as in you know love is all you need all you need is love um, and that is essentially what the Beatles gravitate to and it's what the hippies gravitate to all you need is love but with the caveat that it isn't easy as John yeah. famously sang it's actually the most difficult thing but I don't think the Beatles recognize that no and I think that there's a case for saying that the 60s is a kind of moral upheaval a recalibration of Christianity on a scale with the Reformation and that just as the Reformation expresses itself perhaps most powerfully through, through music, be that Bach or Wesley's hymns or whatever, it's music that most potently articulates this kind of mood of revolution in the 60s. And it revolves around the idea of love. So on one level, there is the, 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 the way in which all you need is love is, is a, a, a Christless form of Christianity. The Beatles sing All You Need Is Love as Britain's contribution to a kind of universal global satellite link-up. And they've couched it as being a universal message, but actually it's a very specifically Christian idea that all you need is love. Uh, and the whole way through their careers, all, all the Beatles basically subscribe to an idea of love as being a positive that they would have picked up in their Sunday schools. I mean, they were all kind of raised in that. I mean, they found it boring and, and, and binned it. But they, 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 they kind of imbibed it into their bones, and that's what they sing about. But there is also this idea that love is about, whoa, let's, you know, let's throw over the, the traces, let's do what we want to do. And that, of course, leads in two ways. Before the 60s, in the 50s, you already see it in the form of um, the civil rights movement, which the Beatles are, 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 are keen supporters of. The idea that, there sh you know, that, that, that blacks should have equal rights to whites in America. And this is drawing from patently Christian ideas. If there's no Greek or Jew, then there's no black or white. And Martin Luther King is a Baptist preacher. It's absolutely framed in the language of, of, of the Bible. 
But there's also um, a, a second way in which this 60s emphasis on love as liberation has manifested itself. And that's been a, a sense that Christian sexual morality is, is dull, is boring, is retrograde, is oppressive, and is something pernicious. And that if you are repressing yourself, if you're restraining yourself, if you're controlling your sexual desires and reining them in, then it's bad for you. It'll cause you bad mental health. And so therefore you should just let it all hang out and go where your sex drive leads you. And that's something that has manifested itself over the past few decades in an increasing readiness on the part of men to sexually harass women. And that is something that has broken over the past few years. The classic way that, that women in America have demonstrated against sexual harassment mm is to dress up in the robes of, of handmaids from the Margaret Atwood novel and the TV adaptation of it. And, and that's a, a satire on Puritanism. It's a satire on Puritan New England. Mm -hmm. And yet the, the irony is that essentially they, what they're doing is demanding that men behave like Puritans. Do you see this book as having any instrumental value in what might be termed a post-liberal school of thought? Um, let's say I, I, I haven't been surprised by the travails of liberalism that have been happening over the years that I've been writing this book, so basically the past four years, which has, has witnessed Brexit and Trump and all kinds of liberal hand-wringing. I feel that liberals, and I include myself among their ranks, are living off the capital of Christianity and we're not reinvesting. We're taking things for granted and the assumptions that we hold need to be sustained and I think that that the, the global success of Christianity could say the same of, 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 of other frameworks of understanding man's relationship to to the divine as well is founded on more than just kind of abstractions and legal principles it's not just about saying you must do this you must think that because ultimately the thing that enables humans to overcome what I think is an inherent strain of, of tribalism, an inherent strain of chauvinism, an inherent desire to identify with people who are like you, rather than to identify with the kind of the mass of humanity. I think this is a really difficult thing to do. I don't think it's a natural thing to do at all. And I think that, that, that we in the West are kind of deceived because we're so saturated with Christian assumption that there is no Jew or Greek we tend to assume that everybody else can recognize this as being an ideal but 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 i don't think that they they do necessarily but i suspect that you know rather like soil that's getting depleted of nutrients the ideological soil of the west is getting depleted of its nutrients and i don't quite know how we you know what we use to as fertilizer to get it back yeah um you you got me. I mean, I, I, I don't know either. I don't think that re-Christianizing the language around universal human rights is the answer because it's not just a linguistic problem. It's a, it's a, it's a problem of praxis and of application and of actually the way we view the world. But you see, the thing is that, that, that the, the Christian language of rights was universalized because Christians became aware that there were people beyond Christendom. And initially... The, the, the language of, of, of rights gets secularized in um, the, the early 19th century when Protestant and Catholic powers are coming together to try and construct a framework of, of, uh, 
of international law that both sides can accept. And then in due course, when the campaign against slavery is, is, is carried into the Muslim world, again, there's a need for this kind of language not to be overtly Christian, because if it is, then Muslims won't accept it. And that's been true into the 20th century. Um, so when the, uh, you know, the Charter of Human Rights for the United Nations, it's the United Nations. It can't afford to be Christian. The pretense has to be that this is universal in its application. But that uh, desire to be universal, you know, what's universal in Greek? It's Catholicos. It's a Catholic idea. So in a sense, there's no escaping it. And I think that one of the things that's happening now as Western power retreats is that this conceit that we've been able to have for the past two centuries because Western hegemony has been so globally all-embracing is starting to fray and we're starting to recognise that things that we thought were universal, concepts of human rights, secularism, things like that, are, are not at all, that they're very culturally contingent and in fact founded in deeply Christian ideas. So it may be that actually we do need to re-Christianise them because then we would recognize where they come from, what their origin are, and recognize what we have to do to try and persuade people, other people who may not, you know, other, other cultures, other civilizations of their value. Well, I think it's fair to say there is no stronger argument for that than the one that you lay out in this book, which was an absolute education and pleasure to read. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Tom. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Cheers. Let's get drunk. Ha, ha, ha.